I want you to know that I am very, very thankful, deeply thankful to be a part of a body of believers, to be a part of a church who understands that every Lord's Day is, among other things, a reminder of the celebration, uh, a reminder and a celebration of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, apart from whom um, we would be the most to be pitied because we would still be in our sins. And thanks be to God that we are not because He has been raised and He is at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from there he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. It's just kind of a natural progression, isn't it, when we're so used to saying that? Um, and that's why we begin every service, every week, with Christ is risen. Now let's do that again. It's, it threw you off because we're at a different part of the service, right? Christ is risen. Amen. And Amen. Aaron and I were remarking this week that if you think about it, this is actually uh, our 14th Easter this week. So happy 14th Easter, right? I want you to know I'm also very, very thankful to be a part of a church that values the fact that we are a simple means of grace ministry. And for those of you who maybe knew, with us in worship, or you may be guests, I want to take just a minute to explain what I mean by that. Many of us in this room have similar backgrounds, and when we profess Christ and came to faith and our sins were forgiven and we became Christians, we were rightly encouraged after that to begin the process or the journey of spiritual growth. And in that encouragement, there were several means of growth that we all received um, that we were to engage in so that we would, in fact, grow. That list included things like going to church and reading our Bibles, uh, praying, journaling, giving, getting involved in a small group, volunteering in the nursery, Uh, serving the community, evangelism, and then finding our Timothys so we could begin discipling them. And there's nothing wrong in those things. Those are good things. However, this list, unfortunately, this list did a couple things. One, it emphasized the wrong thing, and it also omitted something that is critical as well. It wrongly emphasized that our spiritual growth, our growth in Christ, is something that occurs by our activity rather than by the activity of the Holy Spirit. It it wrongly emphasized that spiritual growth is caused by something we do rather than something that is done by faith through the Spirit and by the Spirit. It, It... also wrongly omitted the sacraments. And that's significant because the sacraments are God's appointed means of grace through which, in the words of 
our shorter catechism, question 88, that Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption. And that includes sanctification and growth in grace. Question 161 of our larger catechism defines a sacrament this way. It says, a sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ in His church to signify, seal, and exhibit unto those that are within the covenant of grace the benefits of His mediation, to strengthen and increase their faith, and all other graces, to oblige them to obedience, to testify and cherish their love and communion one with another. And question 164 says there are two of those sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Um, You see, God knew, imagine that, but God knew as creator that when it comes to spiritual things that are invisible and eternal, spiritual and eternal realities, that for us as physical and fallen beings, we would need something in addition to what is heard. That means that while the Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation, to quote Shorter Catechism 89, God also knew that we would need something that we could see, touch, taste, and smell. He knew that we as physical beings would need to use our five senses. And just to give you an illustration of what I'm talking about, every time our family gets together, it doesn't matter how long we've been together, um, we leave and we always say, love you. And that love you is always accompanied by either while we're saying I love you or after we've said I love you, a hug. We're huggers. And saying I love you is enough, right? We can say I love you and we communicate how we feel and hearing it, we believe it. But there's something about that hug, again, either during or after, that solidifies what we've said, right? It, it, it bolsters it. It, it That hug both points to and seals what we have just said. That hug is a visible word that is tangible. And that is how the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper work. Through these physical elements of water, and we have the, the pleasure of observing both tonight. But through these common elements of water and bread and wine, we are pointed to Christ and His work. Through those simple elements, we're assured of His disposition toward us, His favor toward us, His love for us. And the benefits through these simple means of water, bread, and wine, these benefits are sealed upon us and upon our hearts. He does not use these simple means to point to what we've done. He doesn't use them to cause us to remember anything that we have promised. He uses them to point us to what Christ has done for us. He uses them to point us to the promises the Father has made to us in Him. 
They're channels of God's grace. They make His saving grace known to us. They represent Christ and His benefits to us. And God uses them to stir us up and and to strengthen us and to increase the faith that He has given to us as a gift and to move us, to equip us and move us toward obedience and also to uh, solidify our fellowship with Him and with one another. And all of that is accomplished, in the words of question 91 of the Shorter Catechism, by the blessing of Christ and the working of His Spirit in those that by faith receive them. So our spiritual growth is not about what we do. It's about what the Spirit does within us. It's about the Spirit's work, not ours. And He does that through our hearing and seeing and touching and tasting and smelling over and over and over again what God has done uh, in, in Christ. It, it's through these simple means that we're reminded of our depravity We're reminded of our sin. We're reminded of our need for forgiveness. We're reminded of our spiritual bankruptcy. But we're also reminded of our cleansing and our forgiveness and our redemption and our adoption through Christ. We're reminded, again, over and over and over again, week after week after week, through these simple elements, that He alone is sufficient for our need. It's through these simple means that He and the benefits of redemption are offered to us and through which we receive Him. So when I say that we are a simple uh, simple means of grace ministry, I'm saying that all we need when we gather for worship is our Bible, a little bit of water, a little bit of bread, and a little bit of wine. We don't need these lights, we don't need the sound system, we don't need cameras, we don't need programs, we don't need strategies for growth, though they may be profitable, we don't need performances. Our primary responsibility is the preaching of the Word and the right administration of the sacraments. And for that, I am eternally grateful. Now. Unfortunately, throughout the history of the church, the people of God have had a tendency to not administer the sacraments rightly. They have through misunderstanding and neglecting and misusing them have done a disservice, right? To the point that what? They're left off the list that we get when we become believers that we need to encourage us to grow in grace. And on one such occasion, where one such occasion is, um, or we, we just read about, Matt just read about from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The church at Corinth was not administering the sacrament appropriately. And in order, and we're going to look at that tonight, we're going to look at it throughout our small group studies this week. It's a part of our family worship guide this week. I mean, we are going to, we're going to inundate ourselves with what, what is the Lord's Supper? Why do we do what we do? Uh, what are we doing? Why are we doing it? How we do it? Where we do it? So that we can continue to be as, as we desire to be in the, as a simple means of grace ministry to continue 
to rightly administer the sacrament. And so as is our custom, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin, all right? Uh, Father, would you by your spirit please grant power to the preaching of your word, awaken our attention, refresh us, encourage us, challenge us, convict us, comfort us as we see Jesus and hear his gospel. As always, I'm weak and needy, unfit for this, and so I ask for your support and strength and the filling of your spirit, my desire is to be a pure channel of your grace. So give me words to say, help me to communicate with clarity, fluency, and fervency, and, and grace for the sake of Christ and his church. Give us ears to hear, in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, if you look in the back of your bulletin in the normal place, there is an outline, and it might, may seem a little daunting. There are seven points, not three, uh, but we will take the same amount of time as we always do to cover those seven points, uh, but that is how this passage broke down for me this week. Um, so hopefully you're in chapter 11. We're going to pick up in verse 2. Paul begins this passage uh, that's going to be a three-chapter correction and instruction for the church at Corinth. And um, he, uh, before he begins, he takes a brief moment, as uh, good teachers do, and he commends them. He praises them. He says, despite all of the problems that exist within this church, there are a few things that I can pat you on the back about uh, you, were, you were holding things, you were keeping things that I have passed along to you uh, that you are following. But he doesn't list them, and he also doesn't linger there very long, and he begins to launch into what it is that he needs to address. And down in verse 17, the, the reason he didn't want to linger there, couldn't linger there, is because they were a divided congregation. In verse 17, it says this, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. The, the divisions that are there are varied. They're widespread. If you remember from chapter 1, if you've read through the book before, you know that the di divisions were created based on personalities. Some were following Paul. Some were following pa Apollos. Some were even following Peter. And the really spiritual folks were following Jesus. They liked him best. There were also divisions within the church between Jew and Greek, as was, was common. But, but here... The divisions he's talking about here were more uh, socioeconomic than they were relational or ethnic. Uh, basically, there were cliques being formed within the church, and this was creating an, an obvious, obvious feeling of alienation on the part of the have-nots, because they were being left out by the haves. They were being excluded by the haves. And the divisions were so stark that when they came together, they weren't being edified. No one was being edified. Actually, they were being discouraged rather than encouraged. And Paul says it, it actually would have been better had you, had you not been meeting. Because your meeting together is having an adverse effect. And while Paul tries to soften the blow a bit, you know, he says, now there must be factions because that's the way the Lord determines who's pure. And so these divisions cause some to leave, some to stay. And, and so they are necessary. But in this case, he, he moves on to say, you know, this division, this divided congregation of yours is, is, is leading to an improper commemoration of the Lord's Supper. And so in verse 20, he says, when you come together... 
It's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do, do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And so when they gathered for the Lord's Day, the divisions between the groups uh, were, were having this detrimental effect on the observance of the Lord's Supper to the point that Paul says, look, you guys aren't even, you're not observing it at all. It's not just that you're misusing, you're not doing it, you're you're not doing at all what is expected or what I passed down to you, and there were several things that were creating this perfect storm. One, of course, was their background in uh, in their pagan religions that they were involved in. They were used to, those prior to their conversion were eating or were used to participating in pagan feasts where animal sacrifices had been taken or had taken place and they were using the blood for various things. And so you, you add that to the fact that over time, right, their observance of the Lord's Supper, they were used to, you know, observing the feasts. And so they started, the, the Lord's Supper began to morph into their after-worship feasts or their potlucks. And the problem was that the rich would bring a lot to eat, the poor couldn't or wouldn't because they couldn't bring anything, so they didn't have as much to offer. They were even split up into two different rooms. The rich would eat in one room, the poor would eat in another room. And then the rich wouldn't even wait on everybody, and they would begin eating because they brought it, so they're going to eat it, and they'd eat till they were full, if not more than full, and some of them were just simply overindulging and getting drunk. And Paul says, what are you doing? What what are you thinking? You're you're not celebrating the Lord's Supper. This type of thing has no place in the church. If you're going to do this, do this at home. You're humiliating your brothers. You're satisfying your own appetites. And, And in the end, you're exhibiting disdain. For the church as a whole, you're despising the church, and there is absolutely no way I'm going to commend this behavior. There isn't anything about it that I can pat you on the back about. And then in verse 23, he says, let me remind you of what the Lord told me regarding his supper that I passed along to you. Let me provide this needed recollection. He says, for I received from the Lord what I delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And you may remember if you were here for our study of Galatians, or if you weren't here, you may remember from your reading of Galatians that Paul had made a a declaration and had certified that the gospel that he was preaching 
had been received by him directly from the Lord. It hadn't passed through any traditional means. He hadn't received it, having been discipled by anybody. Uh, There were no human methods involved. It had begun on the road to Damascus and then had continued in those three years that he was in the wilderness. And that being said, there, there is debate about how, this was, how, how the, the Lord's Supper was passed on to Paul. Some think that he possibly received it during that same period of time. And there are others that think it was passed on to him as he uh, met the disciples and they uh, shared with him the stories of what took place. But regardless, he declares to them, this is something that I received from the Lord and I'm about to give it to you. This is coming from him through me to you And then he shared with them what the Lord both did and said on that Thursday night. As Aaron said, this was prior to his death on Friday. And they're in that upper room and they're observing the Old Testament sacrament of Passover. And in the midst of that observance, he institutes... The New Testament sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And he does that because because of what is about to happen and because both of those sacraments, both of those external things point to, to the same reality and that reality was Him. Both pointed to Him. And so Paul says, don't you see, this isn't some mindless, selfish, exclusive, gluttonous, drunken party. This is meant to be a seeing and a listening and a partaking and a remembering and a proclaiming of something specific. And the focal point, he says, is intended to be Christ's work on the cross on which he willingly laid himself down to be the full and final sacrifice for sin. The focal point is to be Christ's work on the cross in which he shed his blood to not only wash away sin, but to fully and finally ratify the covenant of grace that God made with Abraham of which he had graciously made them a part. But Paul's inability to commend them was not simply due to the fact that they weren't remembering. There, There was much more to it than that because this was much more than just a memorial. This wasn't just a remembrance, though that was a part. What was going on here was that there was a sacramental connection or the proper language is a sacramental union between the bread and the wine and Christ's body and His blood. And that union that was made and and continues uh, to make this meal a, a spiritual banquet, not a physical feast. So... We need to remember, Christ himself on that night in the upper room, he uh, consecrated, right? He, He blessed and consecrated the elements. He took each. He took the bread and he took the wine. He prayed over them. And when he spoke the words that we call the words of institution, he was doing something specific. 
When he spoke those words of institution, he says, I want you to know there's, there is a very significant relationship between these elements, between the bread and the wine and my body and my blood. Christ was communicating that there was an inward spiritual reality to which these outward uh, elements pointed. He was communicating exactly the same thing that he had communicated in John 6. When he said that his body was true food and his blood was true drink. That means that when we eat the bread, when we come to the Lord's table and eat the bread, that bread nourishes us, it strengthens us, it sustains us physically. And when we drink the wine, it biblically tells us that it imparts blessings and is beneficial for us. And in the same way, when we eat, Christ nourishes us. When we come to the table and we eat of the bread and drink of the wine, Christ nourishes us, he strengthens us, he sustains us, and we are blessed and he communicates his blessings and his benefits to us spiritually as well with himself. When we come and we receive those elements, he satisfies our souls with himself. When he says, come, take and eat, and take and drink, what he's saying to them and what he says to us tonight and, to, and every week is, find, feed on me. Find your strength in me. Find your well-being in me. He says, I'm your spiritual food. I'm your spiritual drink. I'm the one who will sustain you. And of course, when we take and eat and when we take and drink spiritually, we are united to Him. We partake of Him. We participate in Him, with Him, and we fellowship with Him and He with us. And we know that because of back in chapter 10 of this same letter. He tells the Corinthians, look, you can't come to the table and come, continue to, to, to go to your pagan feasts. You can't do both. Why? Because when you come to the table of the Lord, you're fellowshipping with the Lord. When you come to the table of demons, right, the two don't mix. When you come to the Lord's table, you are partaking of Christ. You're fellowshipping with Christ. You're, you're participating with Him, united to Him. You come to those, those pagan feasts, and you're participating with demons, you're fellowshipping with demons, you're partaking of evil, you cannot do both. So brothers and sisters, this is not a mere remembrance. It is a deeply significant sacramental union. And through it, we taste and see that He is good. And rest assured, listen to these words from Calvin. He says this, if it is true that a visible sign is given us to seal the gift of a thing that's invisible, when we have received the symbol of the body, let us no less surely trust that the body itself is also given to us. 
we come and we touch those things and just as sure as we touch them and taste them that we can be assured that Christ is doing for us spiritually what he has promised to do. Well, in verse 26, Paul says that our participation and observance in the Lord's Supper is also a visual proclamation. He says this, for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul says this, this meal that you're participating in, this meal that you're, you're sharing in, it's a visible drama. It's a gospel, uh, it's a drama that's proclaiming the gospel. So each and every time they observe it, he says you need to know that each and every time you observe it, your eyes see and, and your eyes see what your ears have heard. Right? You're, you're touching what you have heard. You're smelling what you heard. You're tasting what you heard. But, but because it's a drama, you're seeing what you've heard. And every time you participate, you yourself are proclaiming what you believe about Jesus. You're proclaiming yourself that you believe Christ was given for you. you when you proclaim or when you participate, you proclaim that his blood was shed for you. And when you come and you partake, you are, you are proclaiming that you're in union with Him and you're in union with one another. When you come, you're proclaiming, you're, you're proclaiming that to one another, but you're also proclaiming that to the world. And when we understand that, then we understand why Paul was so upset that they were a divided congregation. Because in how they were living among themselves, they were undermining the proclamation of the gospel. And he says that cannot be. But his strongest words come in verses 27, 29, and 30. And he again alludes to the fact that this isn't simply a memorial because he describes their grave condition. He says this, Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. The indictment is severe, right? He's not messing around here. He says the only way to describe what you're doing when you're doing it, you're not, you're not participating in the Lord's Supper. You're actually trampling on the body and blood of Jesus. He says you're making a mockery of his sacrifice. You're coming in an unworthy manner because you don't recognize your need of him. He's offered to you in this, and you're you're acting like you don't need him. You're coming in an unworthy manner because you're not coming hungering and thirsting for Christ and his righteousness. He says, you're, you're coming in an unworthy manner because you act as though Christ has no part in this at all. You're coming in an unworthy manner because you're proclaiming that his death is irrelevant and what he's asked of you is unimportant. You're coming in an unworthy manner because you're, you're thinking to yourself and telling others around you that obedience doesn't matter. And their lack of discernment was, was mind-boggling. They were not discerning the body and blood of the Lord Jesus being present in the meal, and it was leading to discipline. He said, he said that's why some of you are sick and dying. 
really he's saying, do you think, do you really think the Lord is going to allow you to continue to behave this way without responding? And of course, the answer is no. That rhetorical question is no. Christ is not going to be mocked. You need to take this seriously. You need to take this carefully. You need to approach this carefully and reverently and thoughtfully. And basically, he's saying this is a matter of life and death. And that, of course, provides the rationale for his last point. He encourages them to to make a spiritual self-examination. He said, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. If we judged ourselves truly, we uh, would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Right? Look, before you come to the table, examine yourself. Make a self-examination. Better to ask the tough questions before you come than to come, participate, and find yourself under discipline. Ask questions. You, know, you need to ask yourself, why are you coming? What do you desire? What do you expect? Are you in need of Christ? Do you wish to commemorate his death appropriately? Do you come to feed upon him spiritually and to receive him by faith? Do you desire and expect all the benefits of his death to be sealed upon your heart? Do you you need and do you expect to receive the spiritual nourishment he desires to provide for you? Do you desire to fulfill your obligations to obey his commandments? Do you desire to refrain from sin? Do you desire to publicly identify and pledge yourself with the communion of saints? Do you desire to publicly proclaim that you are united to Christ and to one another? And he says, if so, stop doing what you're doing. Don't do it anymore. Start eating your normal meals at home, right? If you're, if you're going to have a potluck, have it after. If you're going to have a feast, do it after. Wait on one another. Come to the Lord's table together. Come proclaiming you're united to Christ Come proclaiming you're united to one another. Come proclaiming that you're not united in purpose. And brothers and sisters, all of this that we've covered is why we only observe the Lord's Supper when we are physically gathered and don't do so virtually. He says, when you're gathered, five times. We are to be together when we observe the Lord's Supper. This is why we observe the sacrament weekly, and we have have freedom as we define this term as often. We have determined to define that as weekly. And we have determined to define that as weekly because of what we receive I don't know about you, but I don't want to go longer than a week because I need the Lord Jesus. We've we've covered this because we, we, and this explains why we take and eat together and not individually or at 
in, at various times. This is why we lift up our hearts to the Lord, because we receive Him spiritually, not physically. And so, He is not here. He is at the right hand of the Father bodily as He was resurrected. So for us to gather with Him, He lifts us up to Him spiritually by the Spirit, and we stand with Him on holy ground, gathered around His table in heaven, where He offers Himself to us, having already offered Himself for us. That is why we say, lift up our hearts, we lift them up to the Lord. All of this is why we fence the table and we encourage those who are in Christ to come at His invitation, again, to taste and see see that He is good. But to those who are not in Christ, we encourage not to come. It's called fencing the table. And the invitation for those who are not believers is to not come to the table, but to come to the cross of Christ where you will find forgiveness. All of this is why we encourage those who are weak and and weary and sick and sore and in need of encouragement and hope and the restoration of their souls to come because all of us, as I just said, all of us need Jesus. All of us. And and this is, of course, why we expect those who, who come to not only have the ability to discern the body of Christ, but are able to to make that self-examination. And these are conversations, hopefully our, our, one of our goals is for this to lead you as parents into conversations with your children who are not yet coming to the table or who are coming to the table and to talk about discerning the body of the Lord Jesus and what that self-examination looks like. And of course, this is why we set the elements apart from their common to their holy use. We want to come and taste and see and remember and proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Let's do that now. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.